Welcome to Give and Take. It's a podcast where yours truly, Scott Jones, talks with artists, activists, authors, theologians, philosophers, scholars, political pundits, and a host of others about their world, their work, and the lens through which they experience life. I engage my guests in a conversation that's free-flowing, entertaining, unexpected, occasionally bizarre, oftentimes enlightening and informative, and above all else, deeply human. For tuning into this episode of Give and Take. My guest is Jonathan Haber. He's the author of Critical Thinking. It's a book about how the concept of critical thinking emerged, how it has been defined, and how critical thinking skills can be taught. It's a wonderful book, and we had a great discussion about it. I hope you enjoy it as much as I did. I give you Jonathan Haber. Jonathan, welcome to the podcast. Great to be here, Scott. Yeah, it's great to have you. So you have written a book about critical thinking, and this is one of these challenging kind of things because everybody, uh, I think, in our culture romances it, right? We all, we all want to be critical thinkers. We want to be reflective. But I, but it's, it strikes me as there's two things. A, and you get in this in your book about how hard it is to define precisely. And, and B, the practices, I mean, like, it, it, it are often neglected. And so, like, everybody's like, oh, we should all be more critical thinkers. But, like, it seems like on one level, we should, we need, <laughs> we need to understand the term and also we need to understand the practices. So, is this kind of what motivated you to write the book? Yeah, you, you hit it exactly that uh, critical thinking is, you know, there's widespread consensus. We should be doing more of it, but there's also a kind of paralysis uh, sense that, well, you know, Yes, we should be doing more of it, but we don't even know what it is. We don't know how to teach it. Uh, we don't know how to determine if uh, skills are improving. And so, yes, this book was really largely written to uh, dispel those myths. It's part of the MIT Essentials series, which uh, those books are designed to take concepts that are somewhat complicated, either because they're technical concepts or philosophical concepts, and make them uh, understandable to any reader. And so in this book, I really focused on those areas because I'm involved with education, uh, kind of exactly what you spelled out, you know, uh, what is critical, what is critical thinking? Can it be taught? And if so, how can it be assessed? And the goal really was to reveal those sort of, of questions as, as kind of sometimes um, standing in for myths, because in fact, we do know what critical thinking is well enough to move forward with a critical thinking project. We know how to teach it. So uh, this book was designed to sort of, of clear away some of the barriers that are keeping us from doing doing it more often. Yeah. One of the things that's so interesting to me in the book is you talk about, look, people are worried if we do critical thinking classes, we're going to get, we're going to lose content. Like we're going to lose, you know, uh, all the stuff that people need that sort of reading, writing, arithmetic, you know, kind of stuff. And you're like, basically, you talk about Socrates. He he just asked questions. There was no content level. Like, I mean, he didn't pull out uh, critical thinking maps or anything. He asked critical questions. And uh, it was it, it, it took people on an intellectual journey that has changed Western culture. So your kind of argument is, look, you don't need to... It's not either or. And that's a kind of like myth we're living by, right? That, oh, if we're going to teach critical thinking, we're going to lose curriculum space for math or uh, art history or something. No, like you're saying like, it's pretty uh, minimal. Like we can just ask questions and help coach people through questions and that could help them think. Well, and I think, uh, you know, the, the Socrates example is a good one because 
he was engaging people about things that were actually important to them. And through that was getting them to look sort of philosophically at some of the challenges in, in, in their own beliefs. I think a more sort of contemporary debate is the one you highlight that the fear that teaching these skills is going to interfere with teaching the content that are associated with with curriculum at every grade level and then in college. And I think, um, you know, while I could see where that concern come from, I think it's something we don't need to worry about for really for two reasons. One, you know, of the critical thinkers toolkit, the set of skills somebody needs to know to think critically, one really important one is background knowledge, right? You can't think critically about something if you don't know what you're talking about. If you don't know what the law of supply and demand is, you can't have a, a conversation, much less a critical thinking uh, exercise in economics. Same thing if you don't know the difference between Sunni and Shiite Islam. You can't sort of think critically about uh, Middle East politics. So, um, so background knowledge is a vital critical thinking skill, meaning you can't abandon content to learn critical thinking. But on the flip side, uh, you could teach content in such a way that uh, kids forget it, you know, the next day or whenever the test is over. And one of the best ways for that content to stick and become a permanent part of somebody's sort of mental makeup is for them to do something with it. And one of the best things to do with it is think critically about about the issues you're you're learning about. Isn't this kind of the dead poet society philosophy of education? Like, I mean, you have Robin Williams, that great film, like teaching and educating and asking critical questions. And so it's not that he's abandoning content. The way he deals with content is to make sure the students are fully engaged, not just intellectually, but emotionally and, and kinetically. And so the more you get people connected, right, the more that the, that the content is going to stick, right? Yeah, well, I think, um, you know, I, I wouldn't sort of want to leave the impression that the only way to learn critical thinking skills is experientially, you know, kind of like the Dead Poet Society, but also, you know, the sort of uh, progressive education models involving project-based learning. Don't get me wrong. I, I, I love those models. I think they're very effective. I see people um, using them all the time. You know, my, my kids' schools have used them uh, extremely successfully. So, but I, I would say uh, critical thinking education does not require one particular pedagogy. Uh, and in fact, you know, most teachers who are involved with uh, things like project-based learning also do um, straightforward instruction or small group instruction or discussion. There's a whole range of techniques and pedagogies. And the case I'm making in the book is that to teach critical thinking, you don't have to do it all in a single class dedicated just to the topic of critical thinking. In fact, that turns out uh, research shows is not the best way to teach critical thinking, um, nor do you have to abandon kind of pedagogies and techniques that teachers have used for years and are successful with. But what you do have to do is uh, move from the way we teach critical thinking now, which is um, um, through, a tech, through a methodology referred to as immersion, which is uh, teachers think, well, you know, a skilled teacher teaching complex material, the critical thinking skills are coming along for the ride. And as it turns out, that actually is not a good way to teach critical thinking. A much better way is through a technique called infusion, where you actually make the critical thinking skills that kids are learning about explicit. The example I like to use is when a math teacher teaches geometric proofs, uh, they're really teaching deductive reasoning, which is a core critical thinking skill. But, you know, how many math teachers stop and say, okay, that, that 
geometric proof we just did, that's an example of deductive reasoning. And now I'm going to explain to you what deductive reasoning is. I'm going to show you how it can be applied to things outside of math. Okay, that's an example of the infusion method. And I think one of the reasons that 99% of teachers and college professors say they prioritize teaching critical thinking and they think they're already doing it is that they kind of they do do it, but they're using this immersion method, which is not particularly effective. That's one of the reasons, despite the fact that you know nearly all teachers claim to prioritize and are, are doing it, 75% of employers say the students they hire after 12 or 16 or more years of school uh, can't do it. They, they can't think critically. They can't problem solve. And so really the kind of educational mission I'm on is not to kind of tear down the existing education system and build up something new, not to sort of kick you know, social studies or, or math off the curriculum and replace it with a dedicated critical thinking course. You know, no, instead, I'm saying, let's do what the research shows is most effective, which is uh, keep the curriculum in terms of, of teaching critical thinking as it is infused into the existing course material, whether it's ELA or math or science, but to pull out and teach critical thinking skills explicitly, you know, logic, argumentation, um, control for biases, et cetera, teach that explicitly in the context of the subject areas. Yeah. And also is, is some of it too, I think uh, what you're saying is it, the professor thinks they've taught it, right? Because they're, oh yeah, I value critical thinking. I wonder how much also is like, if they could go back to when they were a student and what transformed them, right? And it was probably exactly what you're talking about, right? It was was somebody that like uh, the turnkey kind of method? They gave him the key and opened the door. And 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 I think when you're a professor, you for, the temptation is to forget that, like to forget what helped you as a student. Um, you know, uh, right? I mean, is that is that does that sound right? Well, I, I think you know, teachers inspire students in all kinds of ways. We've all had teachers and professors we still remember on how they transformed our lives and and how they made us think. And I think, you know, that could be come from a variety of, of, of um, reasons. There's a lot goes, that goes into being a good teacher. I, I, I think, you know, in, in terms of, of a teacher who is a good, strong teacher and thinks they're teaching students critical thinking, but, you know, may not really end up doing so systematically, I think it's, it's in a way, it's much more mundane, right? Critical thinking consists of a set of skills, right? You have to know some form of logic, right? You need some way to structure your thinking. You don't have to have a PhD in it. It doesn't have to be a particular form of logic, but you have to understand sort of logical forms of reasoning, systematic forms of reasoning. You have to know how to take everyday language, whether it's political speech or an editorial, and turn that into structured statements that could fit into an argument. You have to be able to evaluate that argument for strength and weaknesses. These are all very discrete skills. And I think, um, you know, many skilled teachers uh, probably are intuitive critical thinkers. And I think that's one of the reasons they think, well, when I'm teaching complex material, critical thinking is coming along for the ride. But, you know, the, the example I sometimes use is, you know, nobody would say, well, you know, math is, is a, such an important part of physics. Let's get rid of the math curriculum. Right? Let's right, skip right, math right. and kids will just pick it up through osmosis when they lose physics. That would be nuts, right? And I think critical thinking is the same thing. Is it, it should be no surprise that if we don't understand those sort of building blocks of critical thinking and we do not teach them explicitly, why should students 
learn them. I think, you know, one of the benefits of a uh, sort of system I've been working on of sort of high leverage practices is that it doesn't mean teachers have to abandon, you know, content or teach radically different from what they already do, but it does mean at certain points in the curriculum, you know, that math teacher example I gave you is a good one. You stop and sort of pull out the critical thinking being skilled being, being taught and explicitly teach that. And there's other techniques also. You want to give students, you know, lots of opportunities to practice it and such. You know, but I think the um, critical thinking tool set can be implemented in a wide range of teaching situations. And it, it, I don't want to leave the impression that it requires that sort of, you know, rare, special, inspiring teacher that can do this. Any, any teacher can teach it. Any student can learn it. It's just a question of like, why would they learn it if we don't explicitly teach it to them? That's, that's really you, what I'm calling do for. You walk, do you walk around MIT like frustrated, like, like, oh my God, like you're all so smart and we could just do this and it would help our society. We would help the employers, help the economy. I mean, do you, does it get frustrating at times? Like, like why can't we get on board with this? Yeah. Well, you know, I haven't been walking around MIT for, for a little while, but, um, you know, but I have had, worked at, at MIT and Harvard and, and a lot of groups, um, and, and K-12, uh, teachers and, and such. And I think, um, you know, it's less frustration. It's more sort of, uh, it's a surprise, you know, because your expectation is that sort of critical thinking and intelligence are the same thing. Uh, but if you think about it, if, if they were, why would you have the separate term? Critical thinking, right? Critical thinking is a specific form of thinking distinct from intelligence and wisdom. You know, it's systematic reasoning. It's uh, thinking with a certain sort of process and endpoints in mind. And um, it's not necessarily, I mean, sort of high intelligence. And, and I've been surrounded by people far more intelligent than me. You know, um, that is certainly, you know, a great base to start at to be a critical thinker. You know, but we see all the time kind of intelligent people making bad choices or um, uh, people with, with um, you know, lots and lots of expertise. They have blind spots, right? And, and critical thinking is a way to get you to examine your beliefs, to examine your understanding. And it also requires you to apply thinking skills inside areas you might not have expertise in. So I think, you know, there's... Plenty of examples of the sort of, you know, the PhD um, making errors, you know, either in their own work or in life choices, just like everybody else does. I think that's why critical thinking is really a universal tool set. It's uh, something that um, doesn't require sort of of advanced intelligence to implement. And, but if you've, you know, got high intelligence, it could sort of, of save you from thinking that uh, that that's going to give you all the answers. Yeah, and it's it's interesting that you say that. First of all, one of the things that struck me, you're talking, you're like, you know, you're walking around MIT, like, oh my gosh, if you're the ugly stepsister, your IQ is probably still 140. <laughs> you know, that's a fascinating kind of thing. But like, but this is the kind of thing I, I had a guest on. I don't know, like a week or two ago, Noah Rothman, who writes mm -hmm. for Comedy oh, sure. Magazine. Yeah. Yeah, and he said you know, that basically you, if Corona has not made you investigate your priors, your pre-commitments, mm -hmm. that you're crazy. And I think of like St. Augustine, it said faith seeking understanding. So we all seem to go from this place where like, 
we put faith in sources. You know, we, we you don't walk into your sophomore chemistry class and say, I'm not going to, you know, take anything seriously unless I've interrogated every experiment. You, 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 you put faith in the institution and that's the way to knowledge. But then doubt is the way to the truth, right? Like, I mean, you're gonna, you have to also at the same time when you're putting faith in things, because you can't know anything without some degree of faith and trust and institutions and people that disseminate things. At the same time, you need doubt to like be a critical thing. And certainty seems like the way to nihilism, right? Like in the sense of it, it, all we have is this dance between faith and doubt, right? Like, uh, and it, 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 if, if you're, goal is certainty, you're going to come become a nihilist at some point. I love that you mentioned doubt because, uh, you know, if you read the book, you know, one of the ways I deal with these sort of definitional challenges of critical thinking is I started with a sort of genealogy of critical thinking. You know, where did the notion arise that there is this distinct form of thinking unique, distinct from intelligence? You, you start with Socrates, which is, you know, and, and, and it, it, it critical thinking taps into you know, um, well, critical thinking taps into, uh, sorry, you'll have to edit this out. I uh, just got a beep. Um, I'll start again. Yeah, critical thinking certainly taps into the philosophical tradition, particularly Socrates, but especially Aristotle with logic and, and his logic and rhetoric. Uh, but also taps into science, particularly early science, when the reasoning processes, the scientific reasoning processes were being worked out between sort of scientists and philosophers, which were harder to distinguish during that period. Um, but then those sort of science and philosophy are dedicated to how we should think, what quality thinking would look like. But then you also have fields dedicated to how we actually do think, right? Psychology, cognitive science. Uh, but, you know, when you mentioned doubt, um, you know, critical thinking actually sort of derived from a particular branch of philosophy, uh, which was pragmatism, the one major school of, of philosophy that originated in the U.S. And it started with uh, uh, Charles Peirce, who had um, taken a look at thinking and he took a pragmatic approach to thinking and determined that thinking is not some kind of mystical part of our soul, not um, some some sort of thing you can't get get your finger your finger on. No, thinking is a means to an end. It's nothing. It's nothing else. And the end that thinking is meant to solve is dispelling doubt. Okay, because we hate doubt as a species. We feel doubt. It makes us sort of we react to it viscerally. We'll do anything to get rid of doubt. And once we've gotten rid of it, we stop. Okay, so how you get rid of doubt makes all the difference in the world, right? Because there are several unproductive ways of, of getting rid of doubt. And the scenarios you just described represent those unproductive ways, right? One, you can get rid of it by just, one, you can get rid of it by just believing what you already believe. Yeah, that's called a priori thinking. Uh, that's where sort of our confirmation bias is, right? I, my doubt is resolved because I knew the answer all along. Okay, you can also get rid of it. And through the, study, the studies show, like the more education you get, like it, you just get better at confirmation bias. Like education doesn't necessarily help because you you wind up uh, it, just getting better sources, right? To you get much better at sort of rationalizing your a priori beliefs. We we talked before about uh, you know highly educated people making mistakes. Well, this is often where they make mistakes, right? They make mistakes because they can construct elaborate sort of rationalizations for unproductive ways of thinking, right? You know, uh, 
confirmation bias is is hardwired into our system. Um, but there's other equally unproductive ways of, of thinking, right? I could get rid of my doubt by believing what I'm told. You know, that's authority, right? I can I could resist, I could fight against being what I, I'm told. You know, that's what sort of adolescents do. That's called tenacity, right? And, and you know, a priori thinking, um, authority, tenacity, those are all ways of resolving doubt. And some of them might get closer to the truth, but none of them are really designed to do that, right? If you want to get to the truth, uh, Peirce recommended science, scientific methods of reasoning, uh, proposing hypotheses, testing them to see if they're true or not. Um, you know, that's how you arrive at uh, thinking processes that stand a chance of getting to the truth more productively. And actually, John Dewey, who was the sort of uh, in the line of great pragmatic philosophers, he's the one who really sort of first coined a term that became critical thinking. And it's really about reflect, he called it reflective thinking. It's really about reflecting on your beliefs, not taking them as a given, uh, not kind of uh, assuming they're true because you've always thought they were true or not assuming they're true because somebody's told you they're true. Uh, so thinking critically requires reflection. Uh, it doesn't require abandoning sort of things you have come to believe. You know, there's kind of these two intellectual virtues associated with critical thinking. One is intellectual humility, kind of recognizing that you don't know everything and you might be wrong and you might even be wrong about things you believe very strongly. But there's also intellectual courage that when you've come to a belief through a sort of thoughtful process, then you should stick with it and defend it and fight it you know, unless you're given evidence to prove that it might be wrong. And I think sort of between those two principles, you have the equivalent of Aristotle's golden mean, right? You have sort of, of true wisdom is when you are open to the possibility that you might be wrong, but you're also ready to defend yourself when you put the work into it and determine that you might be right. And in fact, I think, you know, if you have strong beliefs, they can only uh, become more strong or, or have a stronger foundation if you've gone through the work of thinking critically about them. It's, it's people who are sort of dogmatic, but I find their beliefs are very, very fragile. That's why they get very hostile when they're challenged. Yeah, I often think about this, like uh, like Jen the game Jenga, right? Where you have, uh, you know, this this game where you um, you 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 put all the little wood planks and the thing, you know, on top of each other. And then with the way the game continues is once you get the tower built, you have to pull out the planks. Right. And, and, and then if it, the person that loses is the person that topples the tower. And I think like, that's kind of a fragile way of knowing, right. Where if like, if, if all of your beliefs are at the same level, right. Like, uh, you know, uh, your belief on the Bible and science and air conditioning and all these things, like, if everyone, if anyone, if they all have the same weight and value, anything can be, it can be pulled out and then topple the whole thing. As opposed to like, if it's more like a wedding cake, right? Like you've got this as the foundation. I'm trusting my senses and critical reasoning and things like this. And the next thing I'm going to trust is like certain kind of democratic values I have, even though that's a little less certain because we have multicultural differences on this. And so basically, I mean, I think, right. I think what you're saying is like it, it, a better, it, it, we want to have a, a way to catalog what we know and how we know it and so that we can interrogate it like and actually move our way through the world uh in a way that is is not deleterious right i mean we we don't we don't we, we don't have to value everything this exact same way we can actually learn a value system of 
what we trust, what we know, what we doubt. That, that and, and, you know, the truth. And, uh, you know, I, I think a lot of this boils down to reasons for belief. Right? You can uh, have reasons to believe um, in scientific progress, for example, you know, because uh, you understand, you have the background knowledge to know scientific progress is a result of, of scientific principles, you know, scientific attitude uh, that allows for theories to be tested and and uh, proven wrong, right? That's one of the reasons science has been so successful. Uh, but you can also have beliefs in um, political beliefs, right? And those are not irrational. Uh, those often result from certain values, um, certain principles that you've thought through, right? Um, they're less kind of uh, susceptible to the exactitude of science, right? You know, the, these are human endeavors, but, you know, if you interrogate those beliefs and understand, okay, I, I have this position on this issue, but that's because of these particular values I hold or this, these particular experiences I've had, that will both show to you, you know, what your beliefs are founded on. And, and you know, as you indicated with the wedding cake example versus the Jenga example, having a strong foundation can, can um, make you sort of of grassroots beliefs, make you more open to changing your mind if that's appropriate, but also put you in a better position to defend your beliefs if you have to. You know, but then religious beliefs, right? These are based on things that may be unprovable, uh, certainly unprovable through scientific methods. But if you can, again, interrogate those and say, okay, there's certain um, beliefs in the unknown that I accept because um, of, of kind of valid logical reasons, but then there are other things that you have to kind of take on faith. And if you could just sort of identify those as the result of faith, um, you know, it, we're living through this crisis now, right? For example, um, it's very hard to reject the notion that there's something bigger than ourselves, right? There's something bigger than ourselves in the universe. Now, that might be nature, that might be the universe itself, you know, other people might cast it in, in religious terms and in terms distinct to a particular religion, but those beliefs are not irrational, right? They they may not be grounded on the same form of rationality as you know a scientific uh, theory or deductive reasoning you get in a mathematical proof, but they are grounded in something. And if you understand, yeah, that isn't, grounded, there, isn't there a difference between irrational and non-rational? Like they might not be. Is that is that a helpful distinction between irrational and non-rational? Because something could be not rationally defined, but it doesn't mean it's irrational. Completely, yeah. I mean, you know, non-rational might mean you know you're making decisions based on non by non-rational people often mean non-cognitive, but you know you make decisions all the time based on love and caring and um, concern for others, right? You. Um, Base them on sort of of concern for your family and community. Okay, those those are all sort of non-rational qualities, but they're not just sort of of, of poor substitute for reason. They are critical parts of reason, right? Aristotle had this notion of, of logos, pathos, and ethos, uh, the three modes of persuasion, right? Logic, emotion, and ethos is sort of the connection between people. And you know, very few of the important decisions we make are based on logos, are based on logic alone. In fact, you know, decisions that can be solved purely from logic 
are often very easy to solve, right? Just determine what is the best of two possible solutions using sort of of scientific or other uh, uh, logical reasoning process, and you got an answer. You know, but what happens when you're talking about two competing goods? You know, what happens when you're talking about two competing bads? Like right now, for example, in education, we've got to make decisions that involve no good choice, right? Either we have to teach as many people as we possibly can, and that means we're going to leave people behind, you know, the people who can't learn online, don't have the resources, the bandwidth, the sort of supportive environments, you know, but the alternative or one way we could solve that problem is to not teach anybody. And that's another bad decision, right? So how do we solve that? There's, there's no logical proof. There's no kind of scientific methodology that we're going to come up with the answer to solve that problem. The answer is going to come from understanding our values, understanding our priorities, deciding, okay, we're going to try to teach everybody as best we can um, because we care about everybody who can. Well, suddenly we brought caring, a non-cognitive element into the decision-making, and I wouldn't have it any other way. Yeah, I mean, and this is like, I, I feel like the the antithesis of your book is cable news, right? Because it just it just emotionally charges you up to think. And I think the way the debate around COVID-19 is playing out is you have if you go to MSNBC, anybody that wants to open the, the economy back up doesn't care about human life and is, is awful. And anybody that on Fox, it, it's the argument is if you don't want to open the economy, it's you are, you don't, you don't love the country. You're, you know, you're kind of, this is all political and it, it's just left to state control or something. And, and we're going to have to be in a place where eventually um, we're, we're going to have to, with ambiguities and unknowns and known unknowns, go because the odds are right i mean we're not going to do better than mumps four years i would guess i mean who knows maybe we will but like we're going to not have a vaccine probably and so we're going to have to walk forward together in a way that like where we can all assess risks together and say how do we do this together and it just seems like everything in cable news is precluding everything you argue for in your book <laughs> yeah you know i thought when i saw independence day like years ago like you know, that the entire world would unite in the face of a common crisis. And apparently the, the movie makers were engaging in wishful thinking. Um, you know, I, I think there's a, a couple things to draw from the current situation. I mean, the, the cable news stations and also, you know, the Internet feeds, the fact that we're sort of exposing ourselves largely only to information that we already agree with. Right. That's what I was talking about before, that sort of a priori way of thinking. I think the cable stations are just you know, they're a product and they are uh, selling to people who want to have all their existing beliefs confirmed. Um, th you know, this particular crisis is something you cannot solve purely through logic, right? Because, um, you know, logical argumentation requires premises, uh, premises to an argument, premises are facts. Facts can be proven true or false, but we're dealing with all kinds of things that can't be proven true or false, right? Because they haven't happened yet. We're making predictions about the future. This is this is one of the things that critical thinking is particularly useful for are situations when you have to make decisions about the future or situations where you cannot know all the facts. For instance, arguments that hinge on what's going on in, inside people's heads, which we can't read minds. Um, you know, in, in this particular instance, there is a, a lot of, of, you know, how technically critical it is, but productive thinking going on, I think, particularly at the local level, people are engaging in experiments. 
uh, people are sort of opening up, uh, collecting data, observing what happens, being ready to kind of shut down again. I mean, that's that's how a sort of, of uh, process influenced by critical thinking would evolve, right? Because it would assume we don't have all the right answers now. I, I think it's interesting that the higher up you go in the sort of governmental uh, food chain, and really the more sort of national the discussion is about what to do about the crisis, uh, the less sort of, of informed and sort of, of systematic the reasoning is. Um, you know, it may be that in a time of crisis, out of fear, we sort of huddle to our original positions, meaning we sort of return to our uh, our partisan faith and hope that will get us through. Uh, but I would say, you know, where I have the most hope is, you know, at ground level, people for the most part seem to be behaving, right? Where we're, I'm in lockdown, my family is, most of the people I, I know are, will be re-entering the world very, very carefully. We're not looking to authority, right? We're not looking to governors or, or presidents to tell us exactly what to do. So I think there is some systematic reasoning going on. People probably can't sort of, of put their finger on it as what makes it critical thinking. You know, it's it's instinct. And I guess, you know, what I advocate is why not come to understand what systematic reasoning, what critical thinking looks like so you can apply it. You do know what techniques to apply so you could use it more systematically. What do you think? Why do you think Americans have been so compliant? Because I think we're not great critical thinkers. And I think we are individualists and we can be recalcitrant at times. Like, Why do you think uh, that people have been so compliant. I mean, that's it, it's a phenomenon. I mean, it's crazy, right? Well, if you, if you sort of, of you know go back into the sort of, of philosophy that sort of America's founded on, uh, everybody points to you know John Locke and and the people who played a huge influence on uh, on the founding fathers as they were sort of, of creating a form of government. But you know those founding fathers were also heavily influenced by. Uh, what's called common sense philosophy, uh, 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 philosophy that uh, I believe originated in Scotland. And that philosophy indicated that, you know, the the smallest local unit is where wisdom lies, you know, in in the community, uh, in the neighborhood, uh, on the street. You know, probably the, the last remaining example of that that we're all familiar with is the jury system. There's an assumption that 12 strangers without expertise brought together will make the right decision. And, and in fact, many of, of America's uh, founding principles had that as a sort of core belief that, um, or at least that was one of the, the, the competing core beliefs. So I, I think what you're seeing now is, you know, common sense, lowercase, but also common sense, you know, uh, written uppercase is, you know, at ground level, people, you know, do understand what's best for themselves and their families. Um, I think, you know, again, as the decision making gets more and more separated from you know one's home life. Uh, the kind of more some of these abstract principles come into play, and you can get into a political battle over something that's really ultimately a health issue. Uh, but I would say you know the in general you know the response has been you know responsible, but it's also you know there's emotional. Uh, frustration kicking in. I think, you know, it's been two months. Um, people are, some people are taking to it well, some people less so. I, I can understand all those frustrations. I can sympathize with them. So that too has to be built into the calculus, right? We have to decide, well, we're, we're not going to lock people in their houses for four years. Okay. You know, things are going to open up. 
How can we do this rationally? How can we do it carefully? How can we do it in steps that can be reversed? And I think those are the conversations that are taking place now. How did we go from, it seems like Barack Obama is somebody that would have got an A plus in your critical thinking class, right? Like he's a guy that was reflective, checking his priors, his pre-commitments, team of rivals kind of thing. It's amazing that we went from Barack Obama to Donald Trump, who I'm guessing would not ace your critical thinking class. <laughs> Probably not. <laughs> uh, so, I mean, that's, that's just interesting. Like, do you think about that as somebody who cares about critical thinking? Like, how does the national mood change that quickly? Like, election cycle, election cycle. I mean, uh, does, it, does it scare you? Well, you know, actually, the last book I wrote on critical thinking was actually, it was called Critical Voter. It actually used uh, uh, election politics to teach critical thinking skills. And it came out of a my first podcast I did uh, during the Obama-Romney election, where I uh, used the election politics as examples of critical thinking skills. So it wasn't, it wasn't there to make a claim that one candidate was more of a critical thinker than another. But it, it did expose that there are a wide range of things that go into being a critical thinker. And we've, we've touched on a number of them. Logic, obviously, is one of them, but also kind of uh, logos, pathos, ethos, emotional drivers. You know, so is rhetoric. And I would say um, no major decision, certainly no election decision, is based on reason alone, right? We are making our choices uh, based on certain extent, like emotions, certain extent, tribal loyalties. I, I, I would say, you know, there has been a rise, you know, over the course of the Obama administration, but probably starting somewhat before then, of these sort of hardened partisan positions, right? Certainly when I was growing up, there was not a network solely for people who believed one thing or another. Um, now there are, right? There wasn't an internet and, and social media that was designed to sort of, of cater to your biases to make you feel like, you know, you've been right all along and everybody who disagrees with you is not somebody you should reason with. It's somebody you should hate and move away from and uh, never have a conversation with. So I, I would say that has um, been much more striking over the course of years, you know, much less than, than Who's president? Who's not? Right. We can go through a list of presidents, uh, you know, going back for the last half century, and and they all have strengths. They all have weaknesses. They did sort of of uh, some are smarter than others. Um, some of them followed their instincts, or some of them um, had sort of of uh, political beliefs that sort of drove them. You know, but I think it's much more important to recognize, you know, changes that have taken place in the environment that has created this highly polarized nation that we're in. Uh, those derive, you know, not from who's at the top, they derive from other forces and how we as individuals react to them. I mean, I think it's it's no accident that, you know, we've ended up with in the political situation we have where, um, you know, decisions are being driven not so much by um, debate over particular issues, but how much, and not even how much we believe in our own political positions, but it's much more driven by how much we hate and despise our political opponents. You know, that's unhealthy. And I think that's given us, you know, not just um, some, some problematic election decisions, but just an entire political system that is sort of gridlocked, paralyzed, uh, a public that's susceptible to fake news, you know, and, and there's cottage industries designed to spell out these problems, right? There's, there's, hundred books talking about our sort of cognitive wiring and how it's flawed and why this leads to biases and make us do kind of stupid, irrational things. And, and I agree with all that. I guess, you know, 
you know, I always feel like after reading one of these books, it's like, well, well, now what? What do we do about it? You know, just a bromide about, well, we need to be better critical thinkers and better consumers of information. And, and really, my mission is to say, okay, you know, all, all that is true. Here's how we do it. Here's the steps we need to take. Here's what we need to do in the school. Here's what we need to do at home. Here's what we need to do as individuals. You know, that's going to change the system. It's not going to come from the top of a political order. Top of political order benefits from um, whatever sort of, of political uh, sy- system, even maladies of political system that put in, put them into power. If we want to change things, we at ground level have to start thinking critically more often than not. Well, if people want to do that, I would say they could do a lot worse than starting with your book. It's short, less than 200 pages. It's a lovely book. Um, even feels good in your hands. And you could, um, yeah, I mean, it, this is, uh, you can, what did, uh, better to light one candle than curse the darkness. So um, thanks for all you've done in this uh, field of research. And thanks for spending a little bit of time talking with me about it. Oh, thanks, Scott. Thanks for all you're doing. I think uh, uh, people sort of, of, sharing ideas with different beliefs and trying to learn from each other is a core critical thinking skill. So uh, the work you're doing is mission related. I wish you luck with it. Uh, Thank you so much, my friend. Thanks for listening to this episode of Give and Take. If you like what you've heard here, please do a few things for me. Go share about this episode in iTunes, write a review, give it a rating, share the love and goodness, or go on social media, share a link to the episode on Twitter or Facebook or Instagram. Please pass along the love and goodness if you've experienced it here. Thanks again. Thanks again for listening to this episode of Give and Take. And until next time, friends, fare thee well.